This is the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Welcome to the Biblical Unitarian Podcast, the podcast that aims to start conversations about the oneness and unity of God and about the humanity of Jesus. My name is Dustin Smith, and as always, I will be your host. Thank you so much for tuning into this week's episode of the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. This week, we have episode 240 entitled, The Lion from the Tribe of Judah. We are currently within a series in which we are going through the various messianic passages within the Hebrew Bible, that is the Old Testament, to see what they have to say about the promised Son of God, the promised Messiah, particularly in his person, his role, his responsibility, the nature of his humanity, and of course, his relationship to Israel's God. Now, there are a lot of passages that are supposedly messianic prophecies, but I'm trying to focus in on the most significant ones, the ones that have the biggest bearing on New Testament Christology, the ones that can be verified with some sort of tangible and discernible measure. And so this week, we'll be looking at the end of the book of Genesis to look at the promise of a ruler who's going to come forth from Judah's tribe. If you recall, Abraham had multiple sons, but primarily he had Isaac. Then Isaac had multiple sons, but primarily he had Jacob, and Jacob had many sons. And one of those was Judah. And the Messianic promise that we're going to look at today concerns what is commonly called the lion from the tribe of Judah. In this week's episode, we're going to explore how the New Testament actually draws upon this passage in Genesis 49 in order to portray the person of Jesus Christ. So we have some confirmation that early Christians did view the passage we're going to look at today as a messianic passage, and they alluded to it in order to describe the person of Jesus Christ, his human capacity, and of course, his messianic responsibilities. So here's some of the questions I would like to explore in this week's episode. First, what are the characteristics of the lion from the tribe of Judah based on the testimony of Judah's father, Jacob? Second, why is there a massive difference in how the translations understand the term Shiloh in Genesis 49 verse 10? Third, In what ways do the New Testament authors understand Jesus as a lineal descendant of Judah? And lastly, how does the book of Revelation define the warrior image embedded in the reference to the lion as it pertains to the person of Jesus Christ? Let's find out on this week's episode of the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. The first point we'll be looking at today is the origins of the lion from the tribe of Judah. So our primary passage comes out of Genesis 49, as we've already alluded to. Let's give some context to the Messianic passage. So let's start in Genesis 49, verses 1 through 2, which say, 
Then Jacob summoned his sons and said, Assemble yourselves, that I may tell you what will befall you in the days to come. Gather together and hear, O sons of Jacob, and listen to Israel your father. So we can see here that Israel, the other name for Jacob, has gathered his sons, and of course he's going to go down and give each of these sons his final will and testimony. So when it comes to Judah, we can begin reading in the same chapter, chapter 49, starting in verse 8. So Jacob says, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down to you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He couches, he lies down as a lion, and as a lion who dares rouse him up. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. That's Genesis 49, verses 8 through 10. Now, there are a lot of interesting characteristics that describe this lion-like figure. Of course, to be a lion means that you are ferocious, you are a warrior figure, you are a figure that is able to put the prey under your feet. This person is going to have the necks of their enemies under his hand. He's also a figure that is worthy of worship. In fact, your father's sons shall bow down to you. So Judah is even going to be acknowledged by his own brothers. And he's also described as a royal figure, as a kingly figure. He's going to have the scepter, and the scepter is further described as the ruler's staff. So we can see that the royal dynasty, the kingly dynasty, is going to descend from Judah. And this is important because the books of Samuel, Kings, and Chronicles point out that David and his lineage descend from Judah. So we have confirmation that there's going to be royal descendants. And of course, it is to David that the promise is made that David's dynasty is never going to end, that David and his descendants are going to bear the throne of David. They're going to have this dynasty, this house, and their kingdom is never going to end. And of course, that ultimately culminates in the man Messiah Jesus, the son of David. So from this figure, the lion of the tribe of Judah, we see is a ferocious warrior figure. He's a figure that is worthy of homage and worship, and he is a figure that is a king. He's a royal kingly figure with a scepter that is a ruler's staff. Now we got this reference here in verse 10 that in my translation, it says that the ruler's staff is not going to depart from Judah until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. And this reference to Shiloh in verse 10 has confused interpreters for thousands of years, literally thousands of years, because interpreters are not exactly sure what this means or to whom it refers. 
So some scholars have tried to look at the Hebrew and tried to determine its particular meaning. So, so one of the suggestions, one of the scholarly suggestions, is to see Shiloh as a combination of the word shy, which is the noun for tribute, and then lo is the pronominal suffix meaning to him. So the word Shiloh would mean tribute to him. And so you'll notice some modern translations will say that it is until tribute comes to him. Thereby, him is still a reference to the descendant of Judah, the one that's going to bear the ruler's staff. Another scholarly reconstruction looks at the word Shiloh and gives a little bit of a different uh, verbal connection to it. And so they understand it as the word shallow, which means that which belongs to him, namely that which belongs to the monarchy. So everything that belongs to the monarchy is going to come to this particular descendant of Judah. Now there were some early Jews, as we can tell from the writings of Qumran, the Jewish Targums, and of course the rabbinic literature, that weren't exactly sure what to do with this reference, but they actually understood it not so much as a verb or as a reference to tribute, but actually in reference to a noun, namely a person. And they saw this person as a very specific messianic reference. Unfortunately, there is no New Testament passage that supports this sort of understanding, indicating that early Christians did not seem to regard Shiloh as a messianic reference. But we can see, like in Targum Onkelos, where they give the explanation of this passage in Genesis 49.10, saying that until the Mashiach comes, whose is the kingdom and unto whom shall be the obedience of the nations. So that's Targum Onkelos from Genesis 49, verse 10. The problem with this, according to scholars, and I think I actually think that this objection is worthwhile, is that Shiloh, if it does refer to a noun, seems to be grammatically feminine. And the verb to come, if we're going to say that Shiloh comes, the verb to come is actually third-person masculine. So it's difficult to understand why the author, who knows the grammar quite well, would break the grammar to indicate that a messianic reference referring to a feminine figure is now being used and coordinated with the verb to come, which is actually third-person masculine. It doesn't actually work. It doesn't actually make sense. And to me, it's just not very convincing. Now, as, as you're probably aware, when things are confusing within the Bible, that gives certain people who have nothing better to do with their time to speculate and speculate as to what this might mean. And so some early Jews actually calculated the numerical value of the consonants in their reconstruction of the noun Shiloh and the verb to come. And they noticed that that particular number, which actually adds up to 358, actually equal the numerical value of the Hebrew noun Mashiach. Now, to me, that just seems to be a very interesting coincidence. 
And of course, it doesn't just look at Shiloh. It has to look at Shiloh and the verb to come. But it, of course, it ignores the grammatical problem of a feminine noun being governed by a masculine verb. Now, if you were to do a word study in the Hebrew Bible, you'll notice that Shiloh is also the name of a city, but it seems to be a pretty insignificant city. It doesn't really have any bearing of significance within the history of Israel, and so this really hasn't helped interpreters to make any sense of this particular passage. The problem is that this raises quite a lot of translational opportunities, as we can see in the modern version. So like the English Standard Version translates the phrase as until tribute comes to him, which was our first option. The New American Standard Version translates it as until Shiloh comes. New American Bible says while tribute is brought to him. The Old King James Version has until Shiloh comes. The Holman Christian Standard Version says until he whose right it is comes. And the Septuagint seem to have understood it as until there comes the things that are stored up for him. So there's not even a small consensus on this particular matter. In fact, it seems to be pretty evenly divided, but scholars just aren't really sure what to do with it. It doesn't change the ultimate fact that we know for sure that this figure is described as a lion, which means he's a powerful, ferocious warrior figure. He's a figure that is worthy of worship, not only of the other brothers, the descendants of Jacob, but also all of the peoples. Obedience of all of the peoples, namely all the nations, are going to be given unto this royal figure. And of course, he is, as I said, a royal kingly figure. He is a king. He is a regent. He's one who's going to rule with a ruler's staff. And he's a descendant of Judah, meaning as Judah is a human being, all of his descendants are going to be human beings. This is not an angel that descends from Judah, and certainly not Israel's God, or some sort of supposed person in a Godhead within Israel's God that is the descendant of Judah. The descendant of Judah is a human being. He's a man. He is a member of the human race. That much is absolutely clear. Let's move to the New Testament and look at how the early Christians understood this reference. So we'll look at point number two today, which is Jesus, the descendant from Judah. Now, various New Testament authors, as we're going to note here, describe Jesus Christ as a lineal descendant of Judah. Now, in doing so, they're not exactly saying that he is the line from the tribe of Judah, because Judah had thousands of descendants. But it puts Jesus squarely in the realm of fitting the qualifications. Now, once we get towards the end of the New Testament in the Apocalypse of John and the book of Revelation, we will see quite clearly that Jesus is described as the lion from the tribe of Judah. But the passages we'll look at right now just indicate that Jesus did descend from Judah's tribe. So in the opening passages of the New Testament in Matthew chapter 1, we have the genealogy which traces Jesus all the way from Abraham. So Matthew chapter 1 verse 1 says, The record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. 
Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac was the father of Jacob, and Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. That's Matthew 1, verses 1 through 2. And the passage goes on for 14, 15 more verses, indicating that Jesus ultimately descends from these famous patriarchs in Israel's history. So Jesus is a descendant of Judah, which means that Jesus, like Judah, is a human being. He's a member of the human race. Luke's genealogy also makes this point and notes that Jesus is the son of Judah in Luke chapter 3, verse 33. No surprise there. And then when we get to the book of Hebrews, which is often thought of having an extremely high Christology, whatever that might mean, that needs to be further defined. The book of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 14, that it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. Hebrews 7, verse 14. The author here says it's evident that Jesus was a descendant of Judah. He says it's evident. It's clear. It is pretty basic, common, foundational, basic ABCs. It is so evident. It's so obvious because Jesus is a human being. He's a man. He's a Jew who descended from Judah. And that's quite clear, despite the fact that Hebrews does have a wisdom Christology. This does not take away from the fact that the book of Hebrews describes Jesus in very significant human terms. So those passages indicate that Jesus did descend from Judah, which of course makes him a member of Israel, it makes him a Jew, and of course it makes him a man, a human being, a member of the human race. Not an angel, and not God, certainly. So let's move to our third and final point, looking at the book of Revelation, which is the conquering Messiah in the Apocalypse of John. So I'm going to read the first five verses from Revelation chapter 5, but it's very interesting to also look at the following verse to show how the book of Revelation further interprets and defines these various images that are given to Jesus. And of course, when you're describing Jesus as a lion, you're using animal-like images to describe a human being. You're not saying that Jesus is an actual animal. You're using symbols, which is, of course, what the book of Revelation does. So Revelation chapter 5 and verse 1 begins by saying, I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. Then I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so as to open the book and its seven seals. That's Revelation chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. So this vision begins by offering the first-hand account of John the Revelator. He saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne. So he's talking about God, but he doesn't want to describe God fully because you just can't do that. So it's just the one who is sitting on the throne. 
And in his right hand is this scroll. It gets translated as a book, but it's actually a scroll. It's a rolled up scroll and sealed with seven seals. You can't seal a book with seven seals, so clearly it is a scroll. And there's an angel that is proclaiming the fact that they are looking for someone worthy to open this scroll and to break its seals. And there's nobody anywhere that is able to do this. Now, if God has a scroll, that indicates that God has his purposes and his plans, who is able to reveal these to the world. Clearly, the angel, the strong angel, is not able to do this. He's the one looking out and saying that no one was found. And of course, John begins to cry and weep because this is very upsetting to him. And then one of the elders speaks to John by saying that he needs to stop crying because behold, look, pay attention, the line from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so as to open the scroll and its seven seals. So they did find someone. They did find someone who's able to take the scroll out of the hand of God and to break its seals, to read it, and of course to reveal the purposes of God written within that particular scroll. And this person is called the Lion from the tribe of Judah, but he's also called the Root of David. So we are combining images. This one actually comes from Isaiah chapter 11, which indicates that the promised king is going to be the Root of David, the descendant of David. The Root, of course, indicates the offspring from David's family tree. It uses that Root sort of language. Okay? Actually, the word more accurately refers to the shoot. It's the shoot, the offspring of David, but it combines those images. So you have two different images there. We have someone who descends from Judah. That's a human being who descends from Judah's obviously human family line, and also the shoot of David. So it's a descendant of David. So we know that he's a king. We can see here that he is a lion type figure. He is a warrior figure. And so the image here that describes and depicts Jesus is, again, a warrior figure. He is a conquering figure. And the indication here is that Jesus conquers, he overcomes, he is victorious because he is a powerful warrior figure. Presumably one like David, who was a warrior and one who conquers with violence. And of course, that's what a lion would indicate. A lion is a ferocious, violent figure. Now, that's not where the book of Revelation ends, because the very next verse further defines and unpacks how this powerful, conquering warrior figure, who is a human being descending from Judah and David, and he's also a royal figure descending from Judah and David, Thereby, he is part of David's promised Davidic dynasty. This figure is further explained in Revelation 5, verse 6, which says, And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Revelation 5, verse 6. Now, the book of Revelation, if you're not already familiar with this, it has this literary theme called hearing and seeing. And the way that 
the theme and revelation of hearing and seeing works is that someone will hear something and then he'll turn and he'll look at it and what he sees is meant to further define what he just heard. And this is one of the passages that clearly indicates this, but it's all over the book of Revelation from the first chapter all the way to the last chapter. And so what John hears is that Jesus is a lion, a warrior figure from the tribe of Judah, from the root of David. And when he turns and he looks, what he sees further defines this powerful, violent warrior figure. And what he sees is quite the opposite of a warrior figure. He sees a lamb. And this lamb has some sort of paradoxical understanding. The lamb is standing up as if dead. And so there's this simultaneous image that the lamb is crucified and risen. And it's combining all of these images to indicate that the lamb, of course, the sacrificial image, the docile, nonviolent image. Of course, there are Passover overtones that are involved in that. So there are salvific images of redemption and restoration. But the lamb is not a violent figure. In fact, it indicates the manner in which Jesus, as the Lion of the tribe of Judah, has conquered. Did Jesus conquer as a powerful warrior figure? No, Jesus conquered as a nonviolent lamb who has died. He has been slain, literally in the Greek, he has been slaughtered. And yet, he has been vindicated because he is now standing. And so the New Testament authors depict Jesus as the Lion of the tribe of Judah, but they indicate that Jesus conquers not as a ferocious, violent lion, but he conquers as a Passover lamb who has died, who has been slaughtered, and of course, he has been vindicated by being raised from the dead. So what we can indicate from our study is that Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah, indicating that Jesus has descended from Judah, of course, descending from David as well, which makes Jesus a bona fide human being. He is a member of the human race. He is a man, not an angel from heaven, certainly not the second member of the Trinity. Jesus, of course, is worthy of worship. He is a royal figure. He is a kingly figure, the one who is going to rule from the throne of David. So there you have it. That is our study of the line from the tribe of Judah as it pertains to messianic prophecies and its fulfillment in the man Jesus Christ. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. Please join us next week as we look at, drumroll please, the prophecies surrounding the scepter of Israel and the star from Jacob that is located in Numbers chapter 24. You won't want to miss this particular episode, so please look forward to our next episode. If you enjoy our podcast, please consider supporting us as we aim to promote the sound and non-negotiable truths about the oneness and unity of God and about the humanity of Jesus. You can support us for absolutely free by subscribing on iTunes and YouTube, by giving us an honest review on iTunes, and by sharing your favorite episodes with your friends. If you'd like to offer a donation, there is a link to PayPal associated with this episode. The Biblical Unitarian Podcast is produced and edited by Dustin Williams. I am Dustin Smith, your host. Until next time, please take care.